Alexander, the man who was intent on forging the largest empire the ancient world had seen up to that point, stood around a strategy table with his advisors and generals. The results of the last battle, which had occurred at the town of Issus, were uniquely fortunate for his combined Greek and Macedonian army. The Persian king, Darius III, had brought his wife, mother, and daughters to observe the battle, and who were then captured when he and the Persian army routed. In a bid to end the conflict and get his family back, Darius had sent a missive addressing Alexander as a peer and proposing an end to the conflict by offering one of his daughters hands in marriage, a formal alliance between the two nations, as well as ceding the territory Alexander had already conquered in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. As the rest of his advisors deliberated, Parmenion, one of Alexander's most accomplished generals and closest confidants, leaned in across the map-covered table, meeting the young king's gaze. My king, if I were Alexander, I would accept these terms. Alexander met Parmenion's gaze with unwavering arrogance. If I were Parmenion, so would I. Welcome to the History Podcast. Here we cover segments of history as stories and discuss both popular narratives and other lesser-known tales as well. Our modern understanding of history isn't set in stone, however, and while I'll try to provide as accurate of a narrative as I can, there's some details and specifics that have been lost to time. With that out of the way, I hope you'll join me on this journey through history. This week's episode, Alexander the Great Part 2, Command and Conquest. Let's jump back a bit. When we last left Alexander and his fabulous hair, it was 332 years before the Common Era, and he was now the King of Macedon, succeeding his father Philip II. He was also about to attempt to follow through on the plans his father had already set in place for an invasion of the Persian Empire. About two years earlier, some 10,000 soldiers and several generals, including Parmenion, had been sent by Philip to prepare for a full-scale invasion. As part of their preparations, this group had incited rebellion against the Persians in the ethnically Greek city-states along the Aegean coast in Asia Minor, but these rebellions had lost momentum after Philip's death. While the Greek city-states were inherently independent in nature, Alexander figured that the people who were dissatisfied with Persian rule would welcome him as a liberator. While the Greek city-states were inherently independent in nature, Alexander figured that the people who were dissatisfied with Persian rule would welcome him as a liberator. Alexander crossed from northern Greece into Asia Minor over the strait that was known as the Hellespont, known today as the Dardanelles, which connects the Aegean Sea to the Sea of Marmara. As legends go, upon making landfall, Alexander hoisted a javelin above his shoulder and chucked it for distance. Upon finding its purchase in the soil of Asia Minor, Alexander exclaimed to his men that he thus accepted the land as a gift from the gods, making clear for all his intention to conquer all of Asia Minor for himself. Alexander's advance was not to be unimpeded, however, as 10 to 20,000 Persian cavalry, led by Persian nobility, and 5 to 20,000 Greek hoplite mercenaries, led by Memnon of Rhodes, assembled at the town of Zalia. Near this town in northwestern Asia Minor was the Granicus River, the location where the Persian military first thought to blunt Alexander's invasion. According to Arian, 
Alexander's biographer, the two armories met across the river from each other on the 3rd of May. Alexander, mounted upon his beloved steed Bucephalus, surveyed the battlefield. The Persians had positioned themselves with their cavalry units in the front, with their mercenary allies behind them, clearly planning to assail the advancing infantry with javelins from, thrown from more innumerable cavalry, as Alexander attempted to cross the river. Despite having a numerical advantage, however, the terrain was not in his favor. However, the young king knew his military strategy well and that if he just played his anachronistic cards right, he would be able to overcome these obstacles. There are some contradictory reports on what happens next, as Arian claims that Alexander attacked then and there, catching the Persians off guard, while the 1st century BCE historian Diodorus Siculus, while the 1st century, histor century BCE historian Diodorus Siculus claims that Alexander waited till the next day to attack, Diodorus also pauses a slightly different troop composition by ethnicity and a different sequence of events of the battle, at least in terms of timing. For the purposes of our story today, we will be covering Aaron's version of events. Alexander deployed his army with his heavy phalanx infantry in the center and sent cavalry positioned to cover both flanks. Alexander himself rode with his companion cavalry on the right flank, and when the Persians saw the young Macedonian king, they diverted some of their forces from their center cavalry, as they expected him to lead the initial charge. Alexander, with his trademark tactical brilliance, was never one to let battles play out the way his enemies expected. Taking the first move, he commanded his infantry to advance, while his left flank executed a false cavalry charge. This false charge forced the Persians to divert their troops from the center, to compensate and try and hold the line, which gave Alexander the opportunity that he needed. Matching in style to the tactics used at Chaeronea, Alexander charged at the weakened center, crossing the high-banked river and breaching the Persian line. Now outflanked, the Persian cavalry on their right flank converged on the center, but the left flank was still tied up dealing with the other unit of Macedonian cavalry. A melee broke out between the two forces, both standing almost completely still, the Macedonian riders stabbing and slashing with their spears as the Persian riders closed in. During the fight, Alexander drew the focus of many of the Persian combatants due to his ornate armor and helmet. At one point, while apart from the Macedonian forces, he met with one of the commanding Persian nobles. The noble charged at the would-be conqueror with a javelin, only to be stabbed by the extended breach of Alexander's spear, its head snapping off as it connected. The Persian commander staggered, just barely alive, and drew his blade to attack Alexander. Alexander stabbed the noble again with the broken spear, before drawing his own sword and cutting down his opponent. While he was focused on taking down this noble, however, another Persian combatant came from the left 
and blindsided the young king, cleaving through his helmet and cutting into the back of his head. Alexander was stunned, his vision blurred and muscles slack from the blow. With what strength he could muster, he slashed with his blade and struck down the attacker, and then groggily reined Bucephalus to move back to the Macedonian forces. In his haste to return to his men, and through both the haze from his wound and the general fog of war, Alexander did not notice yet another Persian rider approaching. The attacker drew his sword and raised it aloft to strike Alexander down. But as he swung, yet one more figure charged through the melee. This was Cletus the Black, one of Alexander's personal bodyguards. As the assailant lunged towards Alexander, Cletus charged to the aid of his king, and with one swift motion, Cletus severed the would-be assassin's arm clean off and spirited the young ruler back to the Macedonian forces. As the cavalry melee finished, most of the Persian command structure were now dead. Macedonian Sarissa then met Greek phalanx as the infantry finally met on the Persian bank of the Granicus. However, as the majority of their employers were now dead, many of the mercenaries abandoned the Persian cause and fled. The battle turned to a complete rout in favor of the Macedonians, and Alexander carried the momentum into the rest of his campaign. After two years of successful campaigning throughout the Persian Empire, Alexander had conquered most of all of Asia Minor, even forcing the local Persian satrap at the provincial capital of Sardis to surrender before his multi-ethnic army. During this time, Alexander also made his way to the town of Gordium, which held the fabled Gordian Knot, a large bundle of rope knotted in such a way that it would be nearly impossible to untangle. Legend held that whomsoever would find a way to undo the knot would be destined to rule all of Asia. Scholars and historians dispute how Alexander solved this puzzle, the theme of this episode, but I personally prefer the story where he simply drew his sword and cut the knot in twain, as I feel this was perfectly emblematic of who Alexander was as a person. He possessed supreme ego, as well as a propensity for unconventional thought. Thus, with one simple swing of his sword, Alexander went from simply conquering Persian territory or liberating Greek city-states to declaring an intent to conquer the entirety of the largest empire that that part of the world had seen up till then. Alexander's next move, the year now being 333 before Common Era, was to advance his forces south through the Levant to seize the Persian ports and prevent being outflanked by sea. However, before his, he and his army could progress, Darius III, king of Persia, brought the armies of the Persian Empire to bear against this upstart king. However, before his, he and his army could progress, Darius III, king of Persia, brought the armies of the Persian Empire to bear against this upstart king. To make matters worse, as the Macedonian army marched south, Darius's Persian armies descended on them from the north 
preventing a retreat back into Asia Minor. The Persian forces outnumbered the Macedonian army more than two to one, with some historians recounting the Persian forces up to 600,000 men, while Alexander's army was no more than 40,000. However, many view the Persian count as overinflated, as it would have been unfeasible during these times to field more than 100,000 soldiers at a time. Rather than advancing away from Darius's forces into the interior of, his, of their empire, Alexander knew he had to deal with Darius here and now, and thus the two armies met at the Battle of Issus. Issus was a small town in the south of Asia Minor, and like with the Battle of Granicus, a river flowed between the two forces. Once again, Alexander decided against using the river to his advantage, and favored seizing the initiative and attempting to strike the first blow. The battlefield was set between the Aminus mountain range and the coast of the Issus Gulf, leaving little room for both armies to maneuver. Alexander deployed in what can be considered his trademark formation, with central heavy infantry and cavalry on both sides. Darius, meanwhile, set his infantry and archers in the center and left flank, placing his heavy cavalry on the coastal flank, as that was the only position that allowed them the open space to charge. If you'll also remember from earlier, Darius made the critical error, though he didn't know at the time, of bringing his wife, two daughters, and his mother in his retinue to observe the battle, which, spoiler alert, would come back to bite him in the end. Things did not go well for the young conqueror at first, as Darius struck the first blow by having his cavalry charge along the coast towards the Macedonian forces. The cavalry on the Macedonian left flank, led by Parmenion, countercharged the Persian cavalry and would hold them at bay from the remainder of the battle, despite taking heavy losses. With the Persian cavalry tied up, Alexander thought to advance with his heavy infantry across the river to meet the Persian line, but Darius brought his slingers and archers forward and bombarded the Macedonians as they tried to cross the river. Alexander wouldn't let these circumstances deter him, and charged forward with his companion cavalry into the Persian inland flank. As his infantry met Persian center in battle, as they clashed and the battle seemed to be almost at a deadlock, Alexander has his infantry gradually draw back towards the river, once again opening a gap in the Persian line, allowing his units of cavalry to outflank the Persian center, where Darius was commanding from. His forces now wedged between the Macedonian infantry and cavalry, Darius fled from the battlefield, seeing their king retreating. The rest of the Persian forces followed suit, winning the day for the Macedonian forces. We're back at the start of this episode, where Alexander had taken the royal family hostage, and Darius had attempted to sue for peace. Alexander was not of the mindset to end the war in amicable terms, and thus he sent a harsh response back to Darius. Alexander refused Darius's terms outright, denying every attempt the Persian king made to resolve the conflict peacefully. The Macedonian king felt insulted that Darius would even attempt to negotiate, rather than trying to face him honorably in the field of battle. Even more so, however, he was enraged that his, in his letter, 
Darius had addressed Alexander as an equal, a fellow monarch that had been proven superior on the field of battle. However, to Alexander, Darius was a barbarian king, not worthy of his respect, while Alexander was now destined to be the supreme ruler of all of Asia, at least if the prophecy of Gordium was to be believed. Alexander's army was much of the same, considering those not of Greek or Macedonian birth as barbarians. He would soon have to manage that mindset with that of the barbarians who were now subjects of his burgeoning empire. That problem would have to be dealt with at a later date, however, as Alexander next proceeded to conquer the Levant. But that story will have to wait for another time and another place. listening to the His Story podcast. If there's anything I may have gone incorrect, something I may have glossed over, or if you have any questions, feel free to bring those up in the comment section below. Music for this episode has been sourced from freemusicarchive.org under Creative Commons, and proper attribution and links to the artist profiles will be in the description below. Next time, we'll cover the next section of Alexander's campaign against Persia, leading up through the Battle of Gogamela. After that, we'll be taking a break from Alexander for a bit, to jump forward in time by 17 centuries and a third of the planet away, over to the Sengoku Jidai of Japan, to cover the rise and fall of the first man to almost successfully unify Japan and bring an end to the turbulent civil war, Oda Nobunaga. See you all next time.